The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Answers long misunderstood. Tonight's discussion unearths an impressive amount of evidence of previously unrecognized technological advancements of the ancient past. Evidence based on myths and legends of the Middle East and confirmed through modern technology sources, such as astrophysical evidence, geological substantiation, and countless mainstream science documents. Our guest presents a completely believable case for the astrological analysis of legends and science that are worth further investigation. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Howard West is an author who has written for magazines under the pen name West Spalding, such as Rock and Gem, Western Horseman, Nevada, Golf Journal, Four Wheeler, and other publications, some of which have been troubling to NASA and the Department of Energy. However, his research into ancient linguistic origins has unearthed an impressive amount of evidence of previously unrecognized technology of the ancient past. Technologies that were trade secrets, secrets so important that rulers were killed and erased from history to keep those trade secrets away from their enemies and the common folk. Innovations hidden in myths and legends of the Middle East. Technological advancements that have been confirmed through modern engineering use of the same innovations along with astrophysical evidence provided by NASA. Substantiation is also provided by science journals such as Nature and countless mainstream scientific documents. The title of the book is Locked Gates, The Riddle Lord's Secrets. And around the town of Tonopah, Nevada, very close to Area 51, I'd like to welcome Howard West to Veritas. Hello, Howard, and welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. I appreciate your time and energy today. (laughs) We don't need to tell the audience, but we have gone through a lot today to get this done. So I'm glad that we finally converged. But Howard, let's begin with another Howard, Howard Carter, because I like to go in chronological order. Oh, but first of all, besides of what I read about your bio, how how did you get interested into all of this Egypt and uncovering the technologies that were used? And the fact that even today, a lot of technologies are being hidden from the public and the elite probably have them behind the scenes sequestered somewhere. Let's begin with that. Well, the technology has always been hidden. Uh, In fact, the gatekeepers of knowledge of the past love to keep their secrets from the common folks and the barbarians. They usually use what was called similes or parables. Uh, For an example, uh, if you have a 
Chevy Corvette or a Chevy Vet, it's connected to the uh, the the um, type of fish that the vet used to look like. And then you've got other things like the uh, the Dodge Ram, the Ford Mustang, the Mercury Comet. So what the ancients would do is they would use a simile, meaning it's almost like. Did you did you pause or did I lose you? Oh, I was wondering if you wanted to uh, have any input on that particular subject. No, 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 no. I just, just thought I didn't want to interrupt you, but you're absolutely right. So what they do, as you say, it's a it's a facsimile. Something similar that is not the original, almost like a uh, digital copy of the technology. Is that what you're implying? No, it's actually like if I said you ran like a cat, would that mean that you were on all fours or that you were very speedy? So uh -huh. what they would use the word uh, uh, a item that looked like what the item was doing. For an example, uh, there was an ancient way of transporting stone. And what they would do is they would put it on a barge. That barge would have segmented stones. So if you look down from the top, you would see these segmented pieces. Then they would put a uh, push boat behind the, uh, the barge and another boat or a tow boat in front of it. As it would move down the river, the legs, which were the oars, would be sweeping back and forth. And if you look down from the edge of the valley, it would liken itself unto a crocodile. So what we see on pictures that depict a real crocodile where they're on top of it is not a, 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 an actual crocodile. They're depicting something else and the representation is of that, that of a crocodile, but not a real crocodile? It's not a real crocodile but it has similarities to a crocodile. For an example, a crocodile has little squares on the top of its back, and then it has legs that are on the front that it uses for swimming, and then it has legs in the back that uses for swimming. So when they saw that barge and the boats pulling and pushing it from the edge of the river, they said, that looks like a crocodile. So then from that point on, when they tried to get people not to understand what they were talking about, they would liken it unto the crocodile. What about the statues of what seemed to be almost like a, a dog or a reptilian being? Or I remember my conversation with Zachariah Sitchin when I asked him, what would the not ancient ones, but say 200, 300 years ago, if somebody saw a rocket, he would say, well, they probably would say that it's a large pencil. So they use things that they're familiar with in order to convey knowledge. That's it. But they didn't want the common folk to understand it. So they would use these similes and riddles to be able to transmit that knowledge to the people that have the key to that knowledge. And then the common folk and the barbarians would see something entirely different. And that way they could keep that message out there for their acolytes. But the rest of the people would only see the crocodile rather than the barge that was hauling the stones 
down the river. And they would use many other types of similes to confuse and irritate the common folk and the riddle keeper's enemies. Do you think this is a thought from the left field? And I wonder if it correlates with the advent of the Renaissance. Do you think the Gutenberg press became a threat to the establishment, or did it assist them in maybe spreading misinformation and disinformation? Well, the thing is, when you have a hard copy that can't be changed, that knowledge can be reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. But when you have an idea, that has to be transmitted through knowledge or through wisdom rather than saying, this is what it says because we've got a thousand copies of this book that says it, rather than saying, okay, but that's actually something entirely different when you are trying to keep knowledge away from people. When you have the Gutenberg Bible or the Gutenberg Press, it allowed people to have the same knowledge, but it didn't allow people to have I guess you could say inspiration of what was in the internal pieces of that book. For an example, the Hebrew, each individual letter has a meaning, whereas in the English language, we put letters together to get a meaning where they put symbols together to get a word rather than letters and phonetically together. I'm thinking of the cuneiform tablets for a moment here. As you said, if it's in stone, obviously that was the original intended to convey a message. But how do we really know? We have all these so-called translators of ancient you know, cuneiform tablets or ancient lost languages. How do we really know if it's really lost language that what they're telling us is the truth? Well, one of the things with the cuneiform... Uh, you have a certain amount of interpretive writing where you can go out and make it look fancier than what it actually is. If you go to the, the cuneiform, it was actually connected to a communication system. And what the cuneiform is built on are little, well, almost like arrows with reverse arrowheads. And it also has tiny um, triangles. Those triangles can be reduced back down to the same thing as the Morse code dot, dash, and long dash. By utilizing the dots, dashes, and long dashes, they were able to use a golden mirror. Now, mirrors today, basically, they're basically silverback glass. In the past, just 150 years ago, they utilized a completely different process. What they would do is they would take a copper plate, coat it with mercury, and then that would be turned into a mirror. That process is thousands of years old. And because of that mirror's reflectability, they could use those dots and dashes of the cuneiform and actually transmit those dots and dashes as far as the eye can see. So they would be able to use that 
as a communication system. And communications is the heart of civilization. If you cannot communicate to the town nearest to you, and it takes you three days to walk there and three days to get back, things get real difficult. But when you can use, for an example, the cuneiform, you can go with that dot dash long dash program and create a communication system which will allow you to go ahead and ask the question and instantly be able to have that answer repeated back to you. So let's say you didn't have enough wheat to feed your family, but if you had one of these cuneiform uh, uh, alphabets, you could use the dot dash program and be able to go out and send a message to the next village who could send it to the next village who could send it to the next village who had extra weight, wheat. And that same day, that wheat would be on its way to you. It's like what we have with our cell phones now. We can get what we want from Amazon the next day. That golden mirror or mercury-clad mirrors and that cuneiform system of dots and dashes with enabled society or civilization to outrun a famine. I wanted to leave this conversation for later because I wanted to go in chronological order, but let's talk about the Ankh. The, or Ankh. How do you pronounce it, Ankh? Ankhs. Ankhs. Always, this is one of those questions that I've had for almost every interview that I've done about Egypt and Egyptology is the Ankh and, and, and other aspects of, of uh, Egypt. I mean, the, the, what seems to be the, the Abydos, the helicopter, the plane, but Ankh. A lot of people have different opinions of what the Ankh is for, but you have a very, very peculiar uh, answer to the research. What do you think the Ankh was for? Well, getting back to the golden mirror, the thing is, is if you have a mirror, you can trans, you can redirect sun, the sun and its heat. Now, a lot of the unks would have, they were clear, you could see right through them. Now, if you look at the common mirror that you have today, there are certain times and certain places, magicians are much better at this than I am, they can put that mirror in a location and it looks transparent because it's reflecting back the same thing that's behind the, the mirror. In, in other words, if you have a gray wall on one side and a gray wall on the other side and you have a mirror in between and that mirror is reflecting back the wall, it would look as though that mirror that's in the center of that unks would be transparent. So in many cases, you'll find that the, uh, the pharaohs and their wives and the ruling class would have one of these in their hands, and they would have their hands through what would have been a mirror. But in everyday use, when it was used as a part of a technology, that mirror would be golden. Now, if you go to a lot of the NASA sites, you'll find that they use gold as a heat reflector because gold is the best reflector of sunshine that there is. Now, the nice thing about gold is that it can be pounded incredibly thin. When I say incredibly, I mean 
that if you pound it long enough, it spreads out over 10 feet square, and you can actually see through the gold. You can pound it that thin. So a small amount of gold could cover a large amount of mirrors, and a lot of sunshine could be reflected back. That was the power that uh, we're going to talk about in just a few seconds. Uh, is that the question you wanted answered? Yes, yes, yes. And I'm just thinking that we we look at a mirror these days and wouldn't think that much about it, but we didn't have mirrors for a very long time in the past. So if it's gold, powdered gold, and I believe that maybe they use some kind of mercury around it as well, and as you probably know, they have found pools of mercury underground in the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico. Could this yeah. be also happening in Egypt? And if so, what do you think the purpose of these lakes or, or you know, large, large preponderance of the mercury is? Well, throughout the world, mercury was used as a reflective surface, and it was used for communications. One of the things in the Mexican pyramid areas, at the time that they were built, they were built to be high enough to be able to see to the next mountain or the next uh, uh, Mexican pyramid. They had, in a lot of cases, they had what they had called the sun disk. The sun disk actually has a circle, and then it has wings on the outside of it. You have it in the Mexican um, uh, temples. You have it in the Egyptian temples. You have it in the uh, 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 Indian temples. You have it in Baghdad. You have it all over the world. Now, what those mirrors were in the center of those wings were a communication system. Again, back to that communication system. Even in Mexico, they knew that if you were flashing a light, a lot of people would be able to see it. So what they did is they used wings to damper the visibility of that light. Now, if you go to any movie studio and you look up into the, the rafters of a movie studio or a uh, theater where they do live performances, they have the lights, but then they have what they call barn doors. Those barn doors allow the light to be dampered to just the right location. So when we talk about Oh, for an example, uh, Pegasus. Pegasus was a winged horse. But even though Pegasus was a winged horse, Pegasus didn't fly. The word Pegasus comes from the Greek, and it basically means peg, the strategy. And the word for the, in Greek, for those years, was as. So the name Pegasus would be pronounced Peg app. And what that did, it allowed the men to go out and put this sun disc in the, on the saddle of the horse, and then the wings would go down along the flanks of the horse, and then they would take that horse up a zigzag trail to the top of a mountain, take that off, and then be able to look down in the valley floor 
if a war was going on, and they would be able to flash a message to the people on the ground so they knew where their enemy was moving from, how many people were being moved, and not only that, they were doing it invisibly because they were not being able, the enemy was not able to see the flashes of lights because of the winged sun disk. Then you have not only the Pegasus, but we have the Minotaurs, we have the Centurions, and a bunch of other that to some people might look like hybrids in the past. Do you think there was technology that hybridized animals and humans? Or is that just, as you're saying, to convey you know, an abstract concept? From my perspective, it's an abstract concept that they were trying to portray as a godlike figure so that the enemies and the common folks would repeat the story over and over and over and over again. Let's go to Minotaur. Okay. Minotaur was supposed to be this half ox, half man that was in the labyrinth. Okay. Now we have the uh, a man that was really ticked that all the virgins of his country were being taken and given to this minotaur, but he was in a labyrinth. So what Cepheus did was he got in good with the, uh, the king's daughter, Adrian, and she gave him the secret on how to kill the minotaur. The minotaur was in a labyrinth. It had many levels and had different places that you would go that you would get lost. So what she did is she gave him a ball of thread. That ball of thread allowed him to spool it out as he walked back and forth until he got to the Minotaur. At that point, the battle was engaged and he defeated the Minotaur. Now, to get back out, without that ball of thread, he was lost. But because Adrian gave Cepheus that ball of thread, he was able to wind himself back and out into the light of day. Now, today we have the same thing. We have got children that are being indoctrinated in the labyrinths of the school system. Same thing happening, different time, same thing. Well, I'm glad that you're making this conversation apply to these days, because you mentioned the elites trying to hide technology, trying to hide secrets that could benefit them and not the, 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 the normal folk. But let me just take a little detour here. If there were so many similarities between the pyramids in Egypt, Mesoamerica, and, and even the Far East, do you think these civilizations were in contact with one another, which is contrary to the Christopher Columbus discovery of America story? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, there are, are many of the so-called gods, and I'm not an expert in uh, the Mesoamerican gods and goddesses. In fact, one of them was called Tonopah, but we won't go there. Uh, there were certain gods that gave pieces of information to each one of those varying locations. They had similar, similar characteristics, did similar things, 
and we're able to bring people into knowledge. Now, in certain areas, let me get the page because I wasn't planning on going where we're going, but I have that information. There were different gods out there at that time. When I say gods, we'll call them uh, demigods. And uh, let's see, we have Thoth. And he, he was basically Egypt. And that same characteristic was, uh, let's see, Thoth was, was Nebo in uh, Assyria. And then we have uh, Buddha in India. And we have, uh, I'm going to butcher this, it's uh, Q-U-E-C-H-U-A. Uh, he had exactly the same characteristic. In ancient China, we had Fu his, And then we have Mercury. We have a lot of different characters throughout the world that have exactly the same characteristic. That characteristic was knowledge. And they, they would give the knowledge of cutting stone, the knowledge of mirrors, the knowledge of communications, all of which have exactly the same concept behind them, just a different name, same person. Yes. So Quetzalcoatl, for example, that would be another one, right? Yeah. So because, and, and then there's Hermes and Armas, they all had exactly the same characteristic, doing exactly the same thing. And it was disseminating knowledge. And if you go to the very first book of the Bible, we have a serpent. And what was his big deal? His big deal was disseminate knowledge. So, yes, there is a there is a connection between the Mesoamerica and India and uh, the Arabian uh, Peninsula or even into the Mediterranean. Yes. So you brought up the serpent. Let me bring something else up. Ancient books, there, there are some commonalities, three words that I find all the time. Slavery, gold, and the feathered serpent or snake. Why do you think yeah. the snake is, is portrayed so much? And why is it that in, at least in Western civilization or Western religion, we find the snake to be the, the antithesis of what the other ancient ones used to use. They, they seem to venerate the snake. On this part of the world, we seem to not venerate the snake. Um, if it was dark, I would turn you north, and I would point you into the sky, and I would have you find the North Star. Around that North Star, you will find a snake-like figured figure that uh, is called Dracos. The funny thing about Dracos and all the stars above the northern, uh, the northern horizon, every night, every year, every day of the year, those stars above the northern horizon circle are available to everybody to look at. If the clouds are not covering it up. It's there every day, every year, all the time for thousands and tens of thousands of years. Each of the stars 
in those constellations have certain names. Each name tells you about the qualities of that particular star picture. You have that picture, and then you have what it's called Dracos, and it means draconian. Today, a lot of times people will use the term, well, that's a draconian law. And what it means, it means crushing. So, yes, because that picture is in the sky 24 hours a day, you can't see it when the sun's out, but it's still there. Next to it, there's a hero. He's called Bo in ancient Egypt. He has different names throughout the, the world, but he is in battle with that snake. And that's one of the key stories that have been able to be continually reiterated over the generations. You have other star pictures that have other uh, stories that they tell. But when we talk about oral tradition, it's oral tradition with a, oh, what's it called now? With a storyboard picture connected to it. And so they made the stars connect with it. So if you're in Egypt, you can still see that picture. If you're in Alaska, you can still see that picture. And it's good enough that everyone throughout the world, except maybe if you're on the North South Pole, can see that picture and tell that story. So that's one of the reasons the snake has been venerated throughout the world because that star picture is being told to every generation except the last. So TV was invented and people stopped looking at the stars. So Draco or Draco or Alpha Draconis or Draconian or Reptilians, that's where it comes from. And we see a lot of the, the depictions in, in Egyptian lore, statues, hieroglyphs, and even inside the Vatican. Is there a connection between Draco, the, the, the constellation of, of Draco, or Dracos, as you call it, with Egyptology? Absolutely. Uh, they have a, now this is in a, we're going in a completely different way, but that's okay. Uh, I'll, I've got a complete uh, book on the subject that's about 10 feet away from me that I pull out and give you more detail because I'm getting old. I can't remember everything I could when I was 60. <laughs> I don't mean to be jumping around, but whenever somebody discusses Egypt, I just want to leverage the time to ask these questions. And, you know, having read your, your research, I think that you are very apt to do so. Yeah, uh, the thing is, is like I said, today we're interior creatures. Up until 100 years ago, we were exterior creatures. We were outside, we were in nature, we were able to go out and visualize things. We were able to look into the sky and see exactly the same thing. Now, I'm going to do a jump here and tell you about you have a picture called uh, blank. Okay. Uh, you have pictures in the Southern Hemisphere. Give me a half a second. I'll see if I can just pull it without pulling my headphones too far off. That's fine. And by the way, your sound sounded great uh, about a second ago before you went away to check on the books. 
No, it's too far away. Are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. Yeah, it's too far away for me to get and keep a conversation going. But yeah, I have a complete um, uh, chronology and uh, adaptation of all the different constellations. When I say all, a vast number of them that, uh, as I said, because people looked at the stars, they would use those as the storyboard that would connect their uh, oral traditions. How significant was astronomy to all these civilizations? At least, for example, whenever I go to Mexico and I see all these pyramids, the guides tell me that this on the top, it, obviously they use a lot of astronomy in order to keep their civilization going. What well, happened with that knowledge? Uh, it's like everything else we've been talking about. There are people that are common folks and enemies that don't get the knowledge. So the knowledge is still there, but what you have to do is be able to go back and unpack the language that are connected to those pictures. And in uh, Mexico, it's a little bit more difficult for me to uh, work with because most of my linguistics are connected to the, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Egyptian, uh, that type of language base. And they're very similar in their connection. Whereas in uh, Mexico, I'm sorry, uh, it, it wouldn't do me any good if I could speak Spanish because it's not in Spanish. So I'm at a loss to be able to give you connections in that particular language because I'm just, I, I don't have the expertise. That's fine. But someone told me once, this could be allegory, could be urban legend, but it may, it resonated with me. The person said, Atlantis was in the Atlantic Ocean. Obviously, so many people say that Atlantis was in so many different places, but just bear with me for a moment. Apparently, they, they knew that something was going to happen, and part of this civilization migrated to what we now call Mesoamerica or Mexico, in Mexico, and then some migrated to the the Arabian Peninsula. So my question is, in Spanish, you have Egipto. In Spanish, you have Mexico or Mexico. They both rhyme. The people look similar if you look at them. Do you think that there might be some truth behind that? Well, here's... Now we're getting into another subject. Okay. Uh, we have a problem that most... How should I put it? Not intellectual. We'll call them scientists do not want to connect to. And that is called the Meltwater Pulse 1B. Have you heard? Can you repeat that? I, I lost you there. Can you repeat what you just said? The Meltwater Pulse 1B. Okay. And please define that. Okay. Uh, about 12,500 years ago, uh, Earth had a sudden, when I say sudden, just prior to that, Earth had 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 a sea level stagnation period for a thousand years. Okay, all of a sudden, about twelve thousand five hundred years ago, 
when the star Methic of the constellation Hercules was the North Star, we had sudden. When I say sudden, I mean thousand years of nothing and then a 26.7 foot tidal raise in 100 years. Boom. Then we had from that point, we had gained an inch and a half of sea level for the next several thousand years. So we had a major catastrophe that hit Earth. During that same period of time, we had woolly mammoths. All of a sudden, they were grazing along and everything was hunky-dory, were flash-frozen with food in their stomach, and they didn't, weren't exposed to outside elements long enough for the predators to take and chew them up, so they were in relatively good shape, okay? Now, that particular uh, mastodon is in... Uh, Ooh, you're still there? I lost you. I lost, sorry, I lost you for about 10 seconds. The mastodon, do you... St- Start from there, please. Was yep, I'm losing you completely. I'm losing you completely. Okay. Twist some. All right. Are we still good? Now, now I hear you. Now I hear you. Okay. Maybe my stretch when I tried to get that book uh, pulled things loose. Okay. Maybe. Getting back to the subject. Now. You stay with the mastodon. Yeah. Okay. The mastodon was flash frozen. Now, there's. It's going to get gross. I hate to do it, but I gather to do it. One froze. It died of suffocation. Now, the reason why they knew it died of suffocation is because when you die of suffocation, you get an erection. Now, I, I don't want to say that, but that's what happens. This elephant, as he died, he suffocated, and the reason why they know that because of the erection and because of the brain tissue that had been uh, changed so quickly that blood coagulated, for a better word, in the brain at the same time. The only thing that happened is if it was true. I'm, I'm losing you, Howard. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. I need you to start again because you're, you're cutting off. With this situation with the mastodon, did, did it? Did it? Uh, obviously, obviously, it. Um, it. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it uh, choked to death, lack of oxygen. But was it because it froze? Immediate flash froze. Immediate flash froze. Pillsbury did a study and said if it wasn't flash frozen with temperatures below 250 degrees below zero, its stomach contents would rot before it was completely frozen. This including its stomach was still not completely rotted. Okay. Are you still there? Still here. Okay. So we have... Now, I know this is complicated, but so we have a sudden rise of sea level. We have a and a constant sea level. A lot of people will tell you 
Sorry, Howard. I, I don't mean to sound rude, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you whenever you, I lose you so you can repeat because I want people not to lose the connection and the, the flow. I lost you there for 10 seconds. Because I wonder if I should call you back maybe to, to, to get a better signal or you sure you have every app disconnected and closed? Okay, I'm ready when you are. Go. Okay, now I can hear you. Okay. So, getting back to where we were. So, we have an elephant that's frozen that couldn't, shouldn't have been frozen. What we had at that point in time was another anomaly, and that was the ice cap on Greenland. If, during that period of time of melt-off, the Greenland ice cap should have been getting smaller. At that point in time, the ice cap actually became larger. So what we have is a problem where all the ice would have to have to have accommodated the sudden sea level rise would have put a layer of water ice up to 750 feet to cover every single foot of land that was dry, which it couldn't have been. So what we had at that time was a catastrophe that caused many people to be lost. At that point, the people that were left were able to go back out and repopulate the area. But we lost maybe a billion people, maybe lost Atlantis to the sudden sea level rise, but we have the records of that sea level rise and night an outside storm that was delivered to Earth from outside Earth's atmosphere to be able to accomplish that meltwater pulse 1B, which when you ask, could they have came from the same place? Yes from that meltwater pulse 1B storm, the people that were left decided to go out and repopulate the different areas. They may have had better technology at that point than what we attribute to them. I think cartographers hundreds of years ago did an amazing job even before Christopher Columbus came along, especially with the areas of the, the, the Far East, uh, Europe, Africa, and so on. I have seen maps that show all that area that we call Saudi Arabia now and the Sahara Desert completely populated. Multiple maps showing the same little cities all over the place. And all of a sudden, in the late 1500s, 1600s, you see new maps with barren land, all desert. What happened in your opinion, with that area of the world? Well, in my opinion, about 12,500 years ago, uh, basically we hit the reset button. And because we hit that reset button, there were still people that maintained the knowledge of their societies. Um, I, there's a, uh, an archeological site Uh, that has just been uncovered a few years ago, and it shows stellar pictures in constellation forms of animals 
throughout the the complex, and each one of those stellar pictures, those constellations, bump back to 12,500 years ago. So yes, they're, they did get disrupted in the uh, in India. There's a story about the the terrible winter that went on for years, and that was in India. And they talk about how they went out and killed absolutely everything. That was from that storm. Because everything had collapsed, the seashores had suddenly been inundated where towns and villages used to be. And the few people that were left got on their boats and went to uh, South America, North America, whatever place that they thought that they could start a new life. It was because of a solar storm that caused the Meltwater Pulse 1B. So you don't think that this was exotic technology that the priesthood of the time had? This was a natural event? And if that's the case, and if it's a natural event, don't we have the ability to use or analyze I-score samples to predict when the next one will happen? The problem is with there were there were two basically three uh, two and a half meltwater pulses. There was the first meltwater pulse, which was one A, and the second meltwater pulse that was a thousand years later, which was the one B. Those were a unique situation. If you talk to Zachariah Sitchin, you'll remember that he talked about Venus being. Uh, not in the constant orbit that it is in now, but it was in an elliptical orbit. That elliptical orbit uh, caused some very unique things to happen. There is one planet in the inner solar system that spins backwards. It's called a retrograde uh, uh, rotation. The problem with a retrograde rotation is that the sun itself acts against the planet to cause it to spin. The thing is, if it was there for any length of time, it would not have a retrograde rotation. It would rotate the same way Earth does, the same way Venus does, uh, Mars does, the same way uh, the the, uh, Mars do. But that one's backwards. That transfer happened recently. And according to Zachariah Sitchin, that was when it passed by Earth and gave a lot of problems for Earth. So for us to try to go through records to find out when that was going to happen again, it was a one-time shot, a one-deal shot. Now. Let's begin with another Howard, as I mentioned right at the beginning, Howard Carter, an Egyptologist. What did he discover in 1922? In 1922, he was searching. He had heard of a lost tomb, and he found King Tut's tomb. Now, King Tut actually was the son of a very infamous leader of Egypt. He was so infamous that they actually tore down everything that was ever connected to him. 
his son, his name actually is Tut's Onks Amun. Remember what the Onks was. That was a mirrored shield that was used to create heat. And Amun, or Amben, or it depends on which expert you like to listen to, was the king of the gods of Egypt. What King Tut was trying to do is he was trying to bring the people that were from the priesthood, which was Amman, and the technology of the golden mirror. It had just destroyed. Basically, what happened is that we had um, a king. And where are my notes? And what he had done, uh, when he was young, his, his name was Amon Sis the Fourth. And basically what that name means is I walk with Amon. Now he was the fourth generation with that same surname. There was one, two, three, and four. But what happened was he decided that he would change his name. Instead of walking with Amon, he decided to Akan, Akanten, which was the Anks and the Atan. Now, the Atan was equivalent to a solar furnace. Now, where I live, we have a big solar plant. And around that solar plant are hundreds of mirrors. The Atan was exactly the same concept, but low-tech. They would take the onks and they would utilize that mirror's reflection to one point. So they would take 10,000 or 1,000 mirrors and they would all collect that heat to one point. The one thing that the priesthood of Amman hated more than anything else was the lack of control. So what did this Egyptian pharaoh go out and do? He goes out and builds a great big huge city of towers. On each one of those four sides of those tower, square block towers, he had the different things that solar energy could be utilized by his country. Now, Egypt is a desert country. The only place there's any firewood is within a short distance of the river. You go away from that river, there's nothing because it needs water. So they didn't have the power to be able to melt uh, metals or fire pottery or just about anything that needs heat. They didn't have sufficient fuel to do that. So what Akhenaten did is he went out and he made it commonplace. He made had a vast array of of these towers that had four sides, and each one of those sides partic- uh, showed how they they could use that energy. Now that system had been used for hundreds and thousands of years, but it hadn't been advertised. And so at that point, 
the priesthood of Amon basically went out and poisoned the man, and he died. And not only did they kill him, they went out, and any place his name was written, they tore it off the wall, or they they destroyed it in one way or the other. Then they took these towers that showed his magnificent energy that he would have been able to give to the, the people of Egypt. They broke it apart. Not only did they break it apart, they mixed them together, and then they built uh, walls. They call them the pylons of Hurahib. And they filled these gaping holes in these pylons with the mixed up blocks. Now in 1926, there was a archeologist that was looking at these, these uh, pylons of Egypt and he saw these blocks spilling out. As these blocks spilled out, he noticed that there were different pictures, but there were tens of thousands of blocks and millions of pictures on these blocks. That laid completely dormant until 1965. Then in 1965, R.W. Smith was able to get enough money together, and he teamed up with IBM. And what they did is they put these blocks in rows. And so each row could be photographed. They would photograph each particular, each one would be photographed from a specific distance under a specific amount of light. Uh, and so that each one of the slides, the, they weren't slides, they were uh, negatives, would be two and a quarter inches square, which is a big negative compared to what people used to use. Then they would go out and they would put these on a piece of paper photo paper, and then put a piece of glass on it and expose it. And then then they would go out and develop it. And then they'd have a perfect representation of that wall. Then they would take those pictures and they would note the specific thing in that particular picture. For an example, it might say a, a hand in the left corner bottom, and they would type that into the computer. So after they got all these pieces computerized, then they went out and they started putting these pictures together. At that point is when we just, we finally found out what Akhenaten had gone out and produced for the people of Egypt. Free energy, a massive amount of uh, upgrade of the personal livelihoods because if you don't have to go out and search for firewood, you can do other things. That was so important and it was so evil as far as what the priesthood of Amon decided that it was going to be. So that's why they had to get rid of the man who brought so much life to Egypt. They took it away from the people of Egypt and gave it back to the only people they trusted. But that particular piece of science, that uh, uh, solar energy concept, was the way they would go out and, and years past, 
go out and quarry stones for the Great Pyramid. So Aden or Aden Org was a gut-like technology. It was the it was a technology that was so ahead of everyone else they would not allow the common folk or the barbarians to understand it and that's why Akhenaten was able was destroyed everything he tried to put together they tore apart his son trying to bring the two groups back together the Ankhs and the Aman was also killed but he at least was able to have his things from his life go into his tomb but they hid it so carefully that he wasn't found until 1926. And this is just a boy. And the priesthood and the superiors and the elders advised him to remove all displays of this technology. But I want to just continue discussing this the technology per se. I want to really dive into that. And I wonder, have you been following a lot of the recent research about the this land, so-called land, called Tartaria? Have you looked into that at all? Um, I am a little, how should I put it, removed from most uh, information. I live 50 miles from the nearest phone, so <laughs> I don't get all the, the information that might be out there, but now that you mention it, I'll be sure to look into it. The reason why I'm bringing this up, and we'll discuss more in part, in part two, is because there's so much. You probably have seen these buildings where you see half a window or half a doorway, and you wonder, why would they build this building on this hill, and half, it looks like half of it has been buried, and you see pictures all over the internet where they actually excavate a few meters, and you see that the full door is there because a mud flood or some kind of a of climate event happened that it buried a lot of structures. And then they, I don't mean to digress from your research, but they had all the world's fairs that allegedly were built in a year or two. Immediately after the world fair is gone, they destroyed these magnificent structures of buildings that had their concrete in such a way that it heartened with time, a technology that we can't even replicate today. I don't mean to mix this with your research, but because you're bringing all this technology and the knowledge about the technology back, I wanted to see if you had any connections there. But how can people buy the book and learn more about your work, Howard? Okay, you can go on Amazon, and Amazon uh, has two different versions. They have the the paperback version and they have the hardcover. The hardcover is extremely difficult to get. It's on-demand printing, so they like to have more than one book printed at a time. But the uh, paperbacks are available uh, almost instantly. Then you can also go to uh, Barnes and Noble, and Barnes and Noble also carries the hardcover. And the title of the book is Locked. Gates, Gates, the Riddle Lord's Secret. And when we come back, I want you to explain the title. And also you have the a Trojan horse outside. I want you to explain why you added the Trojan horse there and, and the correlation with all of this. But we have one more hour to go. 
This is Mel Hasselrig. My special guest is Howard West. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.